Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And... Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And we're joined today by our special guests, State Senator... Brian Nieves. Thank you very much for joining us, Senator. And I just want to ask before we, we get into any questions, are you about to vanish into the ether after appearing on a public radio station? <laughs> well, you know, I... I um, I noticed the big sign on the door. It said "No weapons allowed," and I, it, it got me a little concerned. But I did leave everything in the car just so that you guys can feel a little more comfortable as well. well I feel I'm, very comfortable I, around you, Senator. So I'm, I'm glad everybody's comfortable here. That's that's very important. So, Senator, to start us off here, um, your district is in Washington. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? and sort of how you got into politics. Sure. I, I'll tell you, I was very blessed when we went through the redistricting process, you know, a while back. Many of the senators ended up in a really bad position as far as redistricting because they ended up having districts that were very much unlike the original district to which they were elected. In my case, originally I had all of Franklin County, all of Warren County, and then just a little bit of western St. Louis County. After the redistricting, I have a greater portion of western St. Louis County and then still all of Franklin County, but no longer have any of Warren County. So really, if you just kind of look at the map and, and, and the demographics, the geographics, everything, I really do have, and I don't, I don't just say this to sound politically correct, but if you look at my district, I am very blessed. I, I have a great district, western St. Louis County and then all of Franklin County. I couldn't have asked for a better region. How how far east in St. Louis County do you go? Don't you go pretty far east now? I, I do. I have um, basically all of Clarkson Valley, almost all of Chesterfield, Wildwood, Eureka, um, Ellisville, places like that. So really just a great sampling of western St. Louis County. Yeah, I guess Chesterfield kind of got split in half during redistricting. It's kind of interesting that Chesterfield got kind of paired in with Franklin County, because on its face, they don't seem to have a lot in common with each other, but it's still a very Republican district. So as you kind of alluded to, yeah, you're not, not really in danger of being ousted by a Democrat or something like that. My, my concern, I guess you could say, in terms of reelection would be more on the side of a primary. Yes. Because if you if you look at uh, the way the district is made up, yes, it is very much a Republican district. And, and there's quite a difference if you look at the eastern portion of my district, the far, I guess you could say far eastern portion of the district versus the far western portion of the district. On the east, of course, you've got true suburbs, you know, yes. Chesterfield, Clarkson Valley, places like that. On the western end, you have true um, farm, you know, farm yes. territory. And so it really puts me in a position to to have to really kind of hear from from a great range of people and, and experience a, a great range of people. And so it's just it's just really been nice. So how did you get involved in politics and what was kind of your background before you decided to run for the state house and then the state senate? I, I was and probably still am a very unlikely politician. Um, you know, I, I had absolutely no intention of ever becoming involved in politics. Um, when I was in school, I never, you know, ran for class president or was involved in any of those kind of things. Um, I'm just a guy that served 10 years active duty in the United States Navy. Uh, most of that time, about seven of the 10, I was attached to Marine Corps units because I was a Navy corpsman. And so um, 10 years of active duty in the military after I um, got out of the military, I started a small company of my own, just became a small businessman. I am five generations deep small business owner. 
none of us followed directly in the footsteps of our fathers. In other words, my business is not the same as my father's business, but five generations deep small business. And so what happened was, I'm sure this will come as a shock to all of you, but I've always been very much outspoken. I've always been the kind of person. <laughs> no, really? We're breaking some news I, here. I tried to make sure that I said that while none of you were taking a drink so that nothing would get uh, spit onto the, onto the equipment. But, you know, I'm just one of those guys that has always had probably too much to say, honestly. And um, after many, many, many people said to me, well, Brian, if you're so upset about the direction of government, Brian, if, you, if you're just so unhappy with the way our government is going, then why don't you step up and do something mm-hmm. about it? And so really, those conversations were probably more just casual or almost flippant. And, and then they became a little bit more serious and a little bit more serious. And I got to the point where I began to tell my wife things like, you know, someday, someday I'm going to run for the legislature and and try to do something. And um, I don't know that she really absolutely took me seriously until someday became one day. (laughs) And I'll never forget this. It was a Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. We were together with some other uh, small business owner friends of ours. And, and, uh, you know, I was talking to another friend of mine and he said, you know, the, the enrollment time or the time that you can actually go to Jeff City and sign up to try to run for state representative ends in a couple of days. He said, why don't we just go up there tomorrow and do it? Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And I looked at my wife and I said, tomorrow I'm driving to Jeff City and I'm going to sign up to run for state representative. And uh, she looked at me with a look that I'll never forget <laughs> as long as I live. And she said, you're going to what? And um, I said, yeah, I'm going I'm to go run for state representative. And so we went to the Secretary of State's office and signed up. And I'll just tell you a quick little story that tells you a little bit about how absolutely unlikely it was that I would ever become involved in politics. After I signed up at the Secretary of State's office, this friend of mine named Steve that was with me, um, we were getting ready to drive home and we noticed that we had some extra time in our schedule and that we were going to have to drive right by the state capitol. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, why don't we just, you know, pop in there and and see what it's like? Neither one of us had ever been into the state capitol. Never. Really? So we parked and uh, went up to the front door and I peeked my head in, and, of, of course, at that time, they had armed guards yes. and the, and the um, metal detectors, yes. et cetera. And I peeked my head in, and in all honesty, I said to the guard, I said, is it okay for anybody to just come in here? Or do we have to have an appointment? And he just kind of looked at me silly and said, well, yes, of course, you can come right in. So I went through the metal detectors, and long story short, I knew so very little about politics and the way that things happen at the uh, state capitol that somehow, some way, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but Steve and I ended up in the side gallery of the House chamber, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, now I know that typically to go into that side gallery, you need to be a guest of somebody or be with somebody. I didn't know that at the time. And, and I guess we just walked in as if we knew what we were doing because <laughs> nobody stopped us. And so it just so happened that we walked in uh, on the Democrat side. That, that's how little mm-hmm. I knew about all of this. So we and walked they were in the majority party at the at time. At that time. Yes. At that time. Yeah. Yeah. This was right before the glorious transition. Yes. And so anyway, um, we walked in on, on the Democrat side and we're just kind of observing their having debate, et cetera, et cetera. And so all the way on the other side, I noticed my state representative, who, of course, was about to be term limited out. That's why I was running. Wasn't that? Jim Frelker. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And I lived right on the line of where Jim Frelker would be the the state rep or John Griesheimer. Mm -hmm. And so we looked over all the way on the other side of the chamber and we saw that Jim Frelker and John Griesheimer were seated in close proximity on the House floor 
on the other side of the House floor. Mm-hmm. And Steve and I, believe it or not, literally just began to walk right across the House floor to go and say hi <laughs> to my state representative. This is the gospel truth, okay? So we just start sashaying right across the, the House floor, not knowing that you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was um, laughing, because you're yeah. not supposed to do that. It's a big no-no if you're not a big state representative. Yeah. yeah, continue. And so we get about halfway across, maybe even two-thirds of the way across before we... And we're just in casual clothes, right? It's not Now, that, were they in session? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my. Yeah, absolutely. They were debating... <laughs> because that, this was March, if you don't remember, but continue. Right, yeah, yeah, about two or three days before the end of filing. And um, so we're just in casual clothes. And we just start walking across the chamber until we get literally physically accosted and stopped by the, by the guards. And they say, what the bleep are you doing? And I said, quite innocently, I said, well, I'm just going over there to say hi to my state rep. No, you're not. You can't be on this floor, blah, blah, blah. So they escorted us out. And, and so that was my very first experience in the Missouri State House that of Representatives. That is no snark. That is a tremendous anecdote for capital people. But that kind of transitions into, I guess, what we want to talk about next, kind of your role in the Missouri Senate, because you are in leadership as the Senate Majority Whip. You are actually in leadership in the House as the House Majority Whip. Um, kind of just tell me a little bit about how you see yourself in the Senate, what role you play, and kind of how you operate in this in this body of 34? Well, quite differently than in the House. Mm -hmm. Of course, I served eight years in the House. I was blessed uh, to be able to serve the entire length of time that we can serve with time, or excuse me, term limits. And um, in the House, I became the House Majority Whip quite quickly, um, actually even during my freshman term as a House member. And I will tell you, in the House, the job of being the Majority Whip has a lot more power, a lot more juice mm-hmm. than what you have in the Senate, right? In, in the House, um, you know, the whip is much more of a disciplinarian, much more of the person that really tries to keep the caucus in line and, and tries to convince people to, quote, unquote, vote the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in the House, I had a team of floor whips that would actually um, answer to me and, and go out and collect the votes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In the House, when somebody wasn't, quote, unquote, voting the right way, it was the job of the whip to help them understand the benefit of voting the right way, Mm -hmm. okay? In the Senate, it's quite different. Yes, because each man is basically an island or each woman is basically an island. Absolutely, absolutely. So in the Senate, um, where in the House, I would approach a member and say, hey, listen, you're not voting the right way on this and we need to talk about it. In the Senate, it's more like, can you help me to understand how you feel about this? And it's, um, it's quite different. And so really the role of the majority whip in the Senate, as I see it, mm-hmm. a, as a person who currently holds that position, is really more along the lines of I'm just one of the guys that has a seat at the table, mm-hmm. a, at the leadership table. And so I think what happened was, and I can't speak for any other members of the caucus, but I think what happened was our caucus was wise enough to understand that there is a place – for someone who is at the rightest of the right wing of our party to be at that leadership table, right? And, and so um, I, kind of, I kind of represent the uh, right wing fringe of our caucus, and I have a seat at the table. Um, the job of the whip in the Senate is entirely different than the job uh, was in the House, but it does give me a voice at that leadership table, and I'm sure everyone, uh, whether it's those of us at the table or those who are listening, understand that, you know, that leadership table is a pretty important place mm-hmm. in either body. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that particularly interested me 
<clears throat> excuse me, during the veto session. Of course, as our some of our listeners may or may, may not know, you were either the sponsor or the or the chief handler of several of the major gun bills during the session and then during the veto session. One of the things that particularly struck me during the veto session was a you were like the marquee speaker at the rally um, outside by the uh, mm-hmm. gun rights supporters, uh, and you generated a lot of attention. Uh, you gave a very passionate speech. And then when you were talking on the floor where you also gave a passionate speech, it was pretty clear from your remarks that you knew from the caucus that the bill was going to die, even though it had just passed the House. At least the the inference which, that which I got. Which bill are you talking about? We're, we're talking, yeah. Yeah. The uh, so-called, yeah, the so-called gun nullification bill or sure. Second Amendment bill, depending on what Our you want to call bill it. F- 436. Yeah, right. which which would have nullified most of the federal gun laws, but it also would have expanded um, concealed carry. Um, there was a allowed, the allowed um, actually encouraged school mm-hmm. officials to be armed. It had a number of provisions in it. Anyway, I was interested in you talking a little bit about all of that because it, it was fascinated me that day that you know, on the one hand, you were rallying the people, but then by the time the Senate voted, you knew, apparently from the caucus, that it was going to die narrowly, and your remarks sort of reflected that. I was interested in talking you talking about your role that day and also your emotions when you knew sure. things weren't going kind of well. Y'all, y'all notice how skilled uh, Joe is in this process. <laughs> how she said that uh, that I was able to gain a lot of attention. That. That's good. That, well, compared to what could have been said, that's very good. No, I appreciate that. I mean, no, that. it's true. I mean, I'm not taking – Yeah, so really. here's the deal. I mean, it's actually – there's nothing mysterious about it. You know, I I came to the Missouri legislature after um, having grown up – you know, I, I, I grew up in a very um, non-privileged family. I mean, we spent more time being broke than we did um, feeling like we, we had money. And, um, you know, I, I'm probably a pretty – I am probably – one of, if not the most rough and tumble person that serves in the legislature. Okay, Let, let's make no bones about it. Um, you know, I, I have been in many physical altercations in my life. I've been down a lot of bumpy roads. And so what happens is when you when you bring the life experiences to the legislature that I happen to bring. Right. And, and thank God, really, I say right. this sincerely, that there's not a lot of people like me in the legislature. Well, you need I, a variety, I mean it. frankly, I mean, I, any I, elected if, if everybody in the legislature was like me, it would be bad. Um, <laughs> I, but I think there is a place for people like me, yes. you know. Correct. Um, and so anyway, when you, when you come to the legislature with that type of experience, you, you tend – those life experiences have, have taught me to know when I'm about to lose. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when I arrived at the Capitol that day, if you would have hooked a lie detector test up to me when I arrived at the Capitol that day and said, Brian, is the Second Amendment Preservation Act going to be overridden? I would have said that I believe there was about a 70 percent chance that it would be overridden. That, okay. That's the way I, I yeah, arrived the at the The governor's veto, just that, for that, our listeners. Yeah, that so we would override the veto. Yeah. Right. And so as the day as, – as we went through the day and I began to just absolutely feel – just the vibes, you know, from my colleagues and just the, that, that, that there wasn't maybe the degree of support that I had hoped there was going to be, um, I became less and less and less confident that it was actually going to be overridden. Was there any particular point where you thought, oh, this isn't going to happen? 
Yeah, and that was, you know, it's not unusual for us to have caucus meetings during veto session. In fact, I think every year of the 11, I've, I've had 11 veto sessions, and I think out of all 11, there have always been one or two or three, sometimes even four caucus meetings throughout the cor- mm-hmm. uh, ca- course of that day. And so each time we would caucus, and we were not caucusing specifically on the subject of House Bill 436, we were just right, having sure. general on caucus a lot meetings, of different bills, talking yeah. about a lot of different things. And, and so each time we would caucus, I just I left each of those caucus meetings, and I think we had three that day, if I if I remember correctly, I think it was three. And so by the time I came out of that third caucus meeting, I just I, I just knew that I was about to go out onto the Senate floor and get my butt kicked. I, I just I just knew it. I, I was hoping to be pleasantly surprised. I was hoping that maybe uh, something would change, but I just had that gut feeling that it wasn't going to go my way. Was it Coster's legal opinion that raised some questions? I mean, or the uh, law enforcement people who had come out the last uh, within the last week before the veto session, saying that there were some legal problems with with parts of the language? Was that what did I it think, end? Do you think? I think there were a couple of different death blows uh, to the bill. I think that, um, and I've been very clear about my feelings on this. I think that. Attorney General Chris Coster did. I, I think he made a brilliant political move. Right? You now, call listen. him. A, you call him a political master and a political monster <laughs> yes. at the same time. And, and and with the greatest of admiration, I say those things. I mean, you know, when 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 someone beats you, right? You you do have to be strong enough to look at what they did and say, you know what? <laughs> he beat me. I mean, he beat me straight up, fair and square. He beat me, right? Because. If Attorney General Chris Coster would have would have done that report earlier on, correct. I'm very confident that we would have overcome those arguments and that the veto would have been overridden. Instead, he waited till the eleventh hour. Now, I, I don't admire that from from a standpoint of open honesty of the process, but I do admire it from the standpoint of what a great tactician he is. Mm-hmm. And and he beat me. So let's let's look forward a little bit yeah. on that particular bill. I mean, I'm guessing that it's going to come back in some form. I think you were talking with Joe that it was going to come back maybe in a different form. What would you change about that bill to make it more palatable and for it to either pass, be signed by the governor, or be overridden? Would the publication provision still be in there? I, I think what you're going to see, you know, if if you remember the old Freddy Krueger movies, how every time we <laughs> thought he was dead, he wasn't. Yes. Um, you know, that Second Amendment Preservation Act, just just – Trust me on this, okay? It is Freddy Krueger, and and it will be back, and it will be back again. So and can again we call it the Freddy Krueger Preservation <laughs> Act I, after I, that? I, I think I think yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, sure. But anyway, so continue. Here's what's going to happen, at least in as much as I can uh, predict. That bill is going to be one of the very first bills that we work on. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Not not just because it is a quote unquote gun bill, okay. But really because it is a bill that was passed during the regular session with an overwhelming majority. Uh, When it passed in the regular session, it had really pretty good bipartisan support in the House. In the Senate, it was more of a party line vote. But in the House, it did have pretty good bipartisan support. In the Senate, it was more along party lines. But either way, it it had overwhelming support in the House, overwhelming support in the Senate, passed with a quote unquote uh, as if there really was such a thing, veto-proof majority mm-hmm. in both chambers. Right. And so it's a bill that that has that has been approved by the legislature. It's a bill that had a lot of support in the legislature. And then, as as might happen with many other bills, 
you know, there were some maybe imperfections that were noted along the way. Imperfections, frankly, that I think should have been noted much earlier in the process, but mm-hmm. weren't. Okay, but that we've already talked yes. about that. Right. Um, so here's what's going to happen now. We are going to tackle that bill. We are going to, of course, I was the Senate sponsor of the bill. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, we are going to substantively address the issues that were brought up about the bill, the the provision concerning uh, publication of names and things like that. You know, certainly I think we can be clearer about mm-hmm. what our intention was with that. Our intention was never to say that uh, a person of a of a twelve a, a picture of a twelve year old that had harvested a turkey could not be printed. Right, in the right, paper. right. And I told Representative Funderburg this, and I said it on the show. I think that the intent. You know, not publishing a list of gun names. I don't think journalists have an objection to that. I think there was objections to the way it was crafted. It was just too broad, and sure. and well, that was that was it. Connecting it to other things. For example, we were teasing the governor that day in the press conference in the afternoon because we they had determined that if it had been overridden, that we couldn't publish his name because we all knew that he owns a shotgun. <laughs> Right, so, right. So, so. I, I clearly wasn't your intent. I know what the intent was. It was to prevent something like what happened in New York from happening here. Absolutely. I just think that the, the, the way it was written, it was an amendment that was placed on. It wasn't you putting it on as somebody else. Right. I think that was the issue there. And I think you seem to acknowledge that, that yeah. it can be changed to yeah, where it's applicable. The bill certainly was not perfect. And in 11 years, I've never seen a perfect bill. And so that will certainly be one of the things that will be substantively addressed, that will be clarified. Um, I, can't, I can't tell you right now what the exact wording mm-hmm. will be, but I can tell you that I, I think, and it is our hope, it is certainly my hope, that we will be able to modify that provision in such a way that our original intent will be clear and that it will not get in the way of journalists being able to do their job. Now, what about, because the law enforcement had some objections because they were saying they could subject them to lawsuits. Would you be consulting with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think part of what happened there, and, and really the reason that I say that if the attorney general would have given his opinion earlier, we would have been able to overcome that argument. Uh, I, I continue to believe that that argument in its entirety is a ruse. Okay. okay. Now, we just talked about the, the provision concerning the press. And, and I sit here as the Senate sponsor of that bill, as a person who was directly responsible for that bill. And I say, yeah, we could have done that better. That that there's some question about that. Okay, uh, now concerning the, the 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 accusation that was made by the attorney general that this would somehow keep our good trusted law enforcement officers from being able to do things in concert with the federal government, I continue to say that is absolutely false. That is a ruse. Okay, but will we clarify that language? Certainly, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, as it stood, that the language that was in the bill simply kept any um, any entity of our government, whether it was law enforcement or any other entity or political subdivision, as we call it, uh, from participating in acts or pr- participating in programs that would be patently unconstitutional. And so I don't think any of our trusted law enforcement professionals uh, have a desire to do anything that violates a person's constitutional rights. Therefore, I don't think the original writing of the bill would have interfered with that. Uh, but, you know, I'm I'm very open-minded as far as, yes, we can tweak that language. Yes, we can clarify it. We can make it better. Now, I want to ask you kind of a broader question, because you not only handled that bill, but you also handled a bill aimed at combating Agenda 21 and the the foreign law bill. I'm not calling it the Sharia law bill. I understand your point there. And actually, Scott Sifton agreed with you on that. Um, 
those three bills, for whatever reasons, have been used by Democrats, including Claire McCaskill, to kind of castigate Republicans and say, look, the Republicans are focusing on this. You know, let's attack them because of that. I don't know if you've heard that argument, but oh, yeah. I kind of wanted you to respond to it because they are bills that you and handled. And explaining a bit about why you feel these bills are necessary, including the the Second Amendment bill, because, I mean, you obviously believe strongly in it or you wouldn't be pushing it. Sure. Well, you know, I, I've been involved in this arena now for 11 years. And so as a result of that, I've had to learn the quote-unquote game side of politics. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just like everybody else. I wish that there wasn't so much gamesmanship in politics. I wish that it didn't uh, come down to being looked at as a game. But to a certain extent, no matter what it is that any of us ever do in life, you know, I I am a business consultant. The majority of my income uh, is a result of me being involved in the private sector and Mm -hmm. consulting. And so no matter what it is that we do, there is going to be a certain level of gamesmanship in anything. Right. So when Claire McCaskill or anybody else looks at some of these, uh, I would say, more minor bills and says that the Republicans are focusing on these bills, I can tell you as the sponsor of the uh, not so much the Second Amendment Preservation Act, because, yes, we did concentrate on that one. But in terms of the, uh, you know, foreign law bill, that was not a bill that our caucus concentrated on. That was just simply one of the bills out of the maybe 2,000 bills per year that get filed that that happened to find its way through the process and receive a final vote, just like many, many other bills. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so these weren't bills that we so much concentrated on or that we had as primary bills, but they were bills that that myself and some of the other members of the legislature felt would be important to have in place. And so the Second Amendment Preservation Act, really, what that all boils down to is there are many of us in the state of Missouri that believe our Second Amendment rights uh, continue to be eroded away. And so the Second Amendment Preservation Act was really nothing more than an effort to preserve or maintain those rights. Uh, the foreign laws uh, for, uh, excuse me, American laws for American courts bill, really all that was was an attempt to say, look, if a law or, or if a judge makes a ruling and the reasoning for his or her ruling is a foreign law that is repugnant to the U.S. or Missouri Constitution, then that ruling shall not be recognized, okay? Now, one of the things that happens in this gamesmanship thing that we see in politics is that bills are quite often uh, misquoted or misrepresented, right? Most of the time, when you hear this uh, American Laws for American Courts bill discussed and, and people kind of describe it, Typically, what they do is they stop the most important sentence of the bill Mm -hmm. in midstream. Instead of stopping where the period is, they stop at midstream. And they say, well, this bill says that a judge cannot use foreign law, as if the period was right there. But that's not at all what the bill says. The Mm -hmm. bill says that a judge cannot use foreign law and continues on in the same sentence that is repugnant to the Missouri or U.S. Constitution. And so that was just another attempt to preserve the constitutional rights of our citizens. And, um, and then the, uh, the Agenda 21 bill, again, not a focus bill, not a uh, caucus priority, simply one of the bills that happened to make it through the process. Um, but that was a bill that, that basically was brought to me by a city council member in one of the cities that I represent in my senatorial district, where you know they had entered into an agreement 
not knowing that the agreement had its basis in Agenda 21. And as they started to go through the process of implementing that agreement, they began to notice that there were provisions that they felt were egregious to the citizens of that city. And um, and they had gotten far enough along in the process that it became very difficult for them to back out. Mm-hmm. So this particular city council member came to my office in uh, Jeff City. This particular person is not someone that we would think of as a right winger or, or, you know, super conservative like me. And, and he just came to me and said, hey, Brian, listen, can you do something that will at least slow down the implementation of some of these Agenda 21 type provisions? Mm-hmm. And um, I said, sure. And I I filed the bill. Uh, That was not a bill that I pre-filed. That was not a bill that I uh, even filed real early on in session. It was an idea that was brought to me by a city councilman Mm -hmm. from within a city that I represent. And uh, and I was happy to handle the bill. You've talked a little bit about the role that you play in the Senate. Do you see the bills that you craft as being more symbolic in nature than some of the other bills that other senators write? You know, I don't I don't think I would see it that way. I, I think there are some that would. But I think this is what we have to remember. You know, it just so happens that I've been very blessed throughout my legislative career to have been able to move into a leadership position in the House and then a leadership position in the Senate. Um, and so so what I bring with that is my particular view of the world, or we, we might say my worldview, right? Mm-hmm. So my worldview tends to be a worldview that is that is very much uh, centered around the original intent. I, I like to think, I, I, I don't know that history will bear this out, but I like to think that uh, I, I conduct myself in government along the lines of how our founding fathers would, according to our founding principles. And so typically the bills that you see me file are going to be bills that are very much within the, uh, you know, the, the pipeline of, of that way of thinking, mm-hmm. right? And so, I, listen, I, I'm under no illusion that, um, that most of the people think the way I think. I, I think there's a, a certain segment of our society that thinks the way I think. I mean, we've been very blessed throughout my career that, that we've won all of our elections mm-hmm. right. with big majorities, yeah. right? When people have said, now think about this, people have said, and the political pundits from day one, 11 years ago, the political pundits have said these words in, in several different styles or fashions. But what they've always said is that Brian Nieves will not be elected to such and such district when it was the House or such and such district yeah, in the you, Senate. You were among three who were competing for the Senate, for the Senate yeah. in, in 2010, yeah. just to give a backdrop. Sure. And so the political pundits were pretty unified in their opinion that said, hey, Brian is way too far to the right. Brian is way too conservative. He will never be elected in that district. Mm-hmm. But what did the voters say? Well, you're the a voters, state senator right now. so Yeah, and not by a narrow margin. No. You know? So what that does is that doesn't – I don't think that that should cause me or any other elected official to – you know, there's a difference between being cocky and looking at the numbers. Right. Right. The numbers, it's clear that the people of the 26th senatorial district want to have an unleashed pit bull on the Senate floor. Yeah. Now, before we get into your political future and not to, you know, take away some of this mystique, when talking with some of your Republican colleagues and your Democratic colleagues, they like you personally. They say that you're easy to deal with. If you have problems with bills, you often take them behind the scenes. You don't filibuster every bill. We've talked one-on-one before. Joe has talked one-on-one before with you. You're a very nice, rational person when you talk with us, but you get a lot of attention for when you make these 
speeches on the on the Senate floor. Well, and and, and you've become somewhat of a lightning rod, as you know. I mean, there's you know stuff on Facebook or Twitter about you all the time. You're probably one of the more popular <laughs> Missouri topics. So does that? Among, yeah. Is that is that been surprising that you've gotten all this attention from you know a lot of left of center people from every movement that you do or everything that you say or everything that you do on social media? I, to some degree, you know, and and it's been eleven years of it. So I, why do you think that you're such a target? You know, I again, th- this is only what I think, right? right. I, no. I don't. I, who knows? Correct. Um, but you know, I, I think what's happened is, unfortunately, our political process is one that has birthed and then promoted the idea of of politicians being. Milk toast. Mm-hmm. Politicians being, you know, um, if I'm having an, a conversation with you, Joe, and I happen to know that you are in favor of X subject, mm-hmm. and so I'm talking to you, and and uh, and and so I at least give the impression that I'm also in favor of X sure. subject, and then Jason, I'm talking yeah. to you, and I happen to know that you're against it, and so I at least give the impression that I'm against it, right? Right. I, I think the thing that people either love or hate about me mm-hmm. is I am absolutely black and white. And I think the reason that some of my Democrat colleagues, if you, if you think about it, um, if you look at the people that I hang out with in the, mm-hmm. in the off hours and the people that I invite to go right. to things with Apparently, me. Apparently, Jamil and Nasheed and you have watched movies together oh, or something I mean, like that. We're very good friends. You know, you, you take somebody like uh, Senator Holzman from over in Kansas City. I mean, you talk about left of left, right? Mm-hmm. But he and I are great friends, right? We, we go to MMA fights together. I mean, the, the people that I hang out with... <laughs> in the Senate are just as likely to be Democrats mm-hmm. as they are Republicans and sometimes more likely to be Democrats. Right. And I think the thing that the people who are involved in the process, who are not just demagogues, right? right. I mean, demagogues on the right are always going to criticize the left. Demagogues on the left are always going to criticize right. the right. But where you have people that are not just demagogues, people that are there to actually accomplish something for the people, we tend to get along just fine because what my friends to the left have expressed to me many times is they've said, look, Brian, I don't agree with you politically, but I appreciate the fact that you will always tell me exactly where you are. And as a committee chairman, the Democrats know that they can come to me, you know, because the position of committee chairman is probably more powerful, really, if you think about it, than being an elected member of leadership. Right, right. So when the Democrats come to me, with something that they know I'm not really going to be in favor of, but that bill is going to go through my committee, what they find is that I'm very willing to work with them and maybe change some of the wording, whatever, and they appreciate that. Okay, so let's go to your political yeah, future. Yes. You, do you expect to be primaried next year? I wouldn't say that I expect to be. I, what I would say is that if you look at the demographics of the 26th Senatorial District, um, it is a primary-rich environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I haven't been hearing any names. I haven't been hearing any rumors, et cetera, et cetera. So, I, you know, that is just it, – it's a flip of a coin. It's right. a primary rich environment. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to be ready I, and for I, it. Yeah, and I asked that question because, as you kind of alluded to, Franklin County, while it is very Republican, there are different types of Republicans. There are probably more moderate centrist Republicans, and there's probably more Republicans like you. who You described it yourself. You're probably more – right wing than many of them. Mm-hmm. And there's also the fact that St. Louis County is now more into it. So it's possible there could be regional things in play. Right. So that was the reason I asked that question, just because it does seem like a primary rich environment. Sure. Well, and our policy has always been run like you're losing 
And so we just we run like we're losing whether we have an opponent or not. Well, are, now, if you want win re-election in 2014, you would have four more years in the Senate. However, I know there's a number of people, cons- conservatives who have been encouraging you to consider other things, um, if not in 2014, but 2016, uh, when there's going to be a whole bunch of statewide offices, congressional, other things on the ballot. Um, you're in Luke DeMeyer's uh, congressional district. Uh, my question is, are beyond the Senate, is there anything that you're looking at? Has any people been encouraging you for particular things? Um, you know, I, again, I go back to my history. I, I never intended to be in politics. And so, you know, I really enjoy the private sector. And um, I, like, I make a lot more money in the private sector. <laughs> and, um, you know, state senators, just so everybody know, are not, are not like uh, U.S. senators. We make, when you take all of our per diem, all of our miles, our salary, everything, add it together, it's about $40,000 a year. Uh, I have a wife and three kids. And, um, you know, 40000 just doesn't quite right, make no. our lifestyle. And so, you know, I, I know that it is the politically correct answer to say, oh, I'll just follow the will of the people and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, you know, the fact of the matter is I enjoy my private life. I enjoy serving as a senator. I, I will tell you um, I love being a senator. I mean, it, it's I thought I enjoyed being a House member until I got to the Senate. I mean, the Senate is just, it, it's such a great environment. It's a place, it's really a position from which I feel like I can serve the people. Right. And I know that sounds like the right answer, but it is the true answer. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy that never really intended to be in politics anyway. I figure I've got, I've got one more Senate session within, Correct. you know, the term that I've already been elected to. Should we be fortunate enough to be reelected? That would mean that that sitting here right now, potentially, I have five more sessions in the Senate. Correct. Right? So five years in the political world really is an eternity. For example, you know, Luke DeMeyer could run for something else, and that would probably prompt a 3,000-way primary. I would imagine you would be interested in that under that scenario, given your, you know, fervor against the federal issues. government yeah. as well as just the fact that in a divided primary, you might— be able to pull it off. Yeah, I, you know, I would say I could, I could stand before God and man and say that um, to say that I would be interested in that congressional str- uh, in that congressional seat would be a stretch. Mm-hmm. To say that I am okay. open minded would probably be a okay. bullseye. Okay. Um, you know, and I guess the thing there is, yeah, that would be a big primary. Um, Republican primaries tend to be a race to the right, yeah. and so in a race to the right. I think I will always have good footing. <laughs> I think that might be a good and that's way a to, good end spot that. to end it. That's and that's a good spot to end it. Well, Senator, thank you very much for joining thank us. Uh, to sum us up here, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at CSMcDaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And you can follow Joe on Twitter. At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And, Senator, would you like to plug your fa- your Twitter at all? I have enough people on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long. <laughs>